0: My father used to have an old truck, an old, tan Chevy pickup. And one of the great things about this truck is it was so beat up, you didn't mind using it for work. You know, when you get a pickup these days, and if it's all nice, you don't want to use it like a pickup because you're going to scratch it or something. Well, this pickup was past the worry point. It was a work truck, and it worked great, except... It had one thing that was wrong with it. The gas gauge didn't work. Gas gauge didn't work. Uh, well, it, it said it, the, the, the gauge read almost empty. It was like right above E. And you could have a full tank. It read almost empty. Half a tank, almost empty. The only time it was accurate is when it was almost empty. And then as it, as it emptied, it would scoot over to empty. So it only worked, you know, the last like five percent of the gas gauge, and you never knew. You were just sort of gauging. You was like, well, probably feels about like probably ought to get some gas. But so there was a few times that I, you know, drove into the gas station on a prayer because you know as soon as it it, it scoots over to empty. And I've never forgotten that old truck because it has it reminded me of uh, an attitude in life that is very, very easy for us to have. You can have a full tank, but you can view, the gauge will tell you that you're empty, or almost empty. And one thing more than anything takes that wire and breaks it between the reality of what's in your tank and the gauge by which you determine what's in your tank and that's bitterness. Bitterness can drain our relationships. It can dry up our relationship with God. It can take a healthy, balanced perspective and it can twist it out of proportion. It can show something that's reality and flip it and sh- and you will see something that is true, but you won't interpret it as true. You'll have a full tank but you'll see that life is empty. No matter how many blessings, you still see that your life is empty. Well, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Ruth, and we will see this in spades. The book of Ruth. We're going through a series, a little unique series, where we take a single message from each of the books of the Bible. So we've come all the way up through up to the book of Ruth. We did the book of Judges last time. And Ruth, in a sense, is still the book of Judges because it's the time of the Judges. In our English Bible, Ruth comes right after Judges. But in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth comes after Proverbs. Now, why would Ruth come after Proverbs? Think about the very last chapter of Proverbs. And that chapter, chapter 31, focuses on the godly woman, or the excellent woman, or the excellent wife. And there's a phrase in Hebrew referred to that excellent wife that is actually called that Ruth, that exact Hebrew phrase is referred to in the book of Ruth for Ruth. So in the Hebrew Bible, you have the explanation or the description of an excellent woman in Proverbs and then you have the illustration of an excellent woman in Ruth immediately following. But it also works from our perspective the book of Ruth coming after Judges because it was it occurred during that same time. So, you're in Ruth, actually turn back one verse or one book and look at the very last verse of the book of Judges because it helps set the stage for the book of Ruth. Judges 21:25 says this, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, Book of Ruth. Now, it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion, Ephraimites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. Then both Machlon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Remember in the Old Testament, we've talked about all throughout this series so far, that God set up his relationship with Israel in a very specific way. He told them, if you obey, I will bless you, and it will will rain. If you don't obey, it won't rain, and you will have a time of famine. So in the time of the judges, as we saw last time, it was a time of basically general disobedience to God. And so it's no surprise that it was famine during the time of the judges. The time of disobedience is a time it doesn't rain, and there is a famine. It's sort of ironic that the names are mentioned here. Elimelech plays a really minor role in the whole book of Ruth, as do the names of the sons, but the names of the sons are just a little iffy. We're not terribly sure what their names mean, but Elimelech is very clear. It means, my God is king. Eli is my God, Melech is king. Elimelech, my God, is king. And Naomi's name means Pleasant. Bethlehem means house of bread. And so you have these ironies here in these names where you have a famine in the land and you have a famine in the house of bread. And then you have a man whose name, whose name means my God is king leaving the land of Israel to go sojourn in a foreign land. And of course, it's, the, the situation is anything but pleasant. Naomi's name. They left in order to survive, and the irony is they died. They left the promised land, the land that God had given them, and they went instead and lived in a foreign land, which which would not have been uh, what the Lord would want them to do. Plus, the sons married Moabite women. Again, Remember, this is the time of the judges. This is the time where everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Where the Word of God is just sort of, you know, it's, it's convenient if it happens to be what I want to do, but the reality is, the Word of God's not the ultimate filter through which I make my decisions. I make my decisions, what's right in my eyes? Not what's right in the eyes of God. And this family illustrates the typical mindset in the time of the judges. They left in order to live, and ironically, both the, the father and the two sons perish, and for a woman during that time, this was terrible. She would be ultimately left destitute. She is, uh, she's left all alone with her two daughters-in-law. And so it piles up on Naomi. But then something happens, a ray of hope. Look at verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited His people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, and even if I should have a husband tonight, and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's harder for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. So apparently there's some kind of national repentance. We don't know exactly what judge was, was occurring during this time, uh, the book of Ruth. We can sort of, from a few things that, uh, that are clear in the book, as far as generations that will be clear later on, sort of guess that it was the time of Samson or maybe a little earlier than Samson. But, but for whatever reason, God had allowed it to reign and the famine was lifted. And here Naomi finds herself in a foreign land, realizing that she needs to go back to Bethlehem, back to the house of bread where she belongs. So she gets up to leave, and her daughters in law, uh, out of respect and out of what would have been propriety, say that they'll go with her. And Naomi basically says, Look, if you come with me, there's no future. Because we're going back to a place where the rules are, if you're going to marry, you've got to marry in the family. And uh, I don't have any other sons. So if you go back, you're facing the same bleak future that I am. So they make their decision. Verse 14. They lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. And when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Orpah, sizing up the situation and realizing, you know what? There really isn't a future if I go to Israel. She kisses Naomi goodbye, and Orpah heads back to try to start over. Notice she also goes back to her gods. But Ruth literally, it says clung to her, literally she cleaved to Naomi. She stated her loyalty and not only to Naomi, but she wasn't just making this decision because of Naomi, but because of the Lord. Your God shall be my God. And then she even uses the Lord's name in verse 17. May the Lord do to me in worse if anything but death parts us. Ruth has truly been converted. She no longer follows the gods of the Moabites. Ruth is a believer in Yahweh, in the, in the God of Israel. So they continue on. Verse 19. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and with her, Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter in law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Notice Naomi's perspective here. She says very clearly, I've come back empty. They pull up in the old Chevy, and she looks down at the gas gauge. It's empty. It's been empty for a long time. My husband's gone. My sons are gone. We made it all the way back to Bethlehem on an empty tank. And from Naomi's perspective, her life is empty. So much so that she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. Just call me bitter. And then she says why she wants to be called that. And she, she mentions four times that all of this happened because God is against her. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. The Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has witnessed against me. The Almighty has afflicted me. Four times, she says, this is God's doing. You know, when you look at life through the gas gauge or through the gauge that says it's empty, that life has dealt you a raw deal, and as a result of that, you see your life is empty, God's the first person we point at. We may not say it out loud, at least Naomi was honest. But the reality is, we'll blame God, won't we? Because God could stop it all in a minute. He could change our situation. He could make it exactly what we want it to be. He could change the situation to be such that we would look at it as a full tank. But the reality is, it may not be a full tank. Remember, we're looking through a gauge that's flawed. We may may have a life that's full, but we may see it as empty. Notice also, Naomi, how she refers to herself. In these verses that we just read, I counted, she refers to herself eight times. Now, it's easy to blame Naomi, but the reality is we often do the same. When we are disappointed with life, when it's God's fault, we are very much focused on self. Very much focused on self. And it's, it's tough sometimes to hide behind the excuses that, that make us bitter. Life is hard for all of us. I know when you look at Facebook, it doesn't seem like that. I know when we come here to class and people stand up and share their praises, it seems like God's working in everybody's life but your life. But the reality is, everybody hurts. Everybody struggles. And most of what we see is uh, the, the pain that we do, even the pain that we do reveal is just the tip of the iceberg. Below the waves, underneath, that iceberg is so much larger than we show to the public. What we show to the public is just the tip. The reality is we are all hurting. And we will often point to these as reasons that we're angry with God or we're angry with other people. Listen for a second to the book of Hebrews. Just listen to the verse. You can jot it down if you like, but just listen to Hebrews 12, verses, verse 15. Hebrews twelve fifteen says this. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. A root of bitterness. See to it that you don't come short of the grace of God by allowing a root of bitterness springing up to cause trouble. To come short of the grace of God, just not talking about losing your salvation or something, it's talking about coming short of realizing that what God's grace has given you. Just as God has no bitterness toward us because of grace in Jesus Christ who died for our sins, so we have no bitterness toward one another. And we forgive each other because God has forgiven us. We really can. And The way this is written in Hebrews is the original language tells us to be continually watching. When it says see to it, it's written in such a way to say this is something you're continually doing. You're continually watching to make sure that no root of bitterness gets planted. So when you weed your garden, think about that for a second. When you go out and you're looking at the bushes and just, you know, two weeks ago, you pulled the weeds. Now you look down and they're there again. You don't just go down and and snap off the top of that weed. You try to pull up the whole thing. You try to get the root out. Because if you just snap off the top, it's just going to come right back. You want to make sure that the root of bitterness, that the true source of whatever it is that is causing you to be bitter, that you're getting to the root of it. It's really easy for us to want to deal with surface issues, like, well, my problem is debt, or my problem is alcohol, or my problem is uh, I need to lose weight. In the reality, these are only symptoms of the problem. The real problem, for many, of, for those and for many other things, is much, much deeper. Kathy and I were talking this week about um, issues of life, and when we talk about whatever the problem is, you want to take it back and say, why is that an issue? And then take it back further and say, okay, why is that an issue? And you want, to, you want to chase that problem all the way back to whatever the real root is. Because if you can pull up the root, the fruit is going to die by itself. Our bitter hearts will say, God, if you were loving, you would have done such and so. But the reality is bitterness in life makes God accountable to us, doesn't it? Up to now Naomi is interpreting the character of God in light of her circumstances. God has dealt with me bitterly. But Naomi's going to learn to interpret her circumstances in light of the character of God. That's such a healthy switch. And that that is that is our prayer and that is our goal for our time here in Ruth. Instead of interpreting the character of God in light of your circumstances, interpret your circumstances in light of the character of God. Look at chapter 2. Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please, let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now, sometimes... It's hard to see God in our lives. It's hard to see God working in our lives. But He's there. Did you catch God in these verses that we just read? Verses 1 through 3? His name's not mentioned. His name's not mentioned at all. But He's there. Look again at verse 3. She departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. I have a marginal reading there, and maybe you do, for not that she happened to come, but literally, her chance chanced upon the portion of the field of Boaz. She just so happened. The the, the writer is telling us, here's a coincidence that isn't a coincidence. She, her chance chanced upon this. In other words... Our chances are God's choices. Keep your finger here in Ruth and turn to the right to the, book, to the book of Proverbs. And look at a few Proverbs. Look at Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16, we'll start right in verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Verse 3 Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Verse 9 The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Each of these Proverbs that we've read, and there are others, if you look at the cross references for just these three, it takes you to other places in Proverbs and other places in the Scripture that tell us the same thing, and that's, that's basically this, that we make our plan, and God's got his plan for our plans. That we think that we're making the choice to move to a certain city, and the fact is God's been behind all the details of it. We go and we have a conversation that seems to be just a chance conversation. But the reality is, it was a divine appointment. If we look at the various aspects of our lives, not as random acts, but as divine leadings, and are always open to to God being involved in our lives, even on the minute levels of conversations or, like, turn back to Ruth, from Ruth's perspective, she just happened to go to this field. She didn't tell Naomi, look, I know we got this rich guy who's related to us. I'd like to go work in his field today. Maybe we'll get lucky. She didn't say that. She said, let me just go and glean after someone in whom I find favor. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. She didn't know that, but God knew that. God led her. Our so-called chances are really God's choices. Our plans and the will of God in our lives are not mutually exclusive. I've seen this happen a number of times in my life. I played guitar when I was a kid. I still play guitar, but I was really into it when I was a teenager, so much so that I decided that I would major in it and did major in it at the University of North Texas. God used that not just to help me learn to play the guitar, but because coming up here, he opened up a wide door for things that I wouldn't have been exposed to otherwise. I just happened to choose North Texas State University. The reality is God was choosing Denton because in Denton, I would meet people that he would powerfully use to change my life, not the least of which, 30 years ago, meeting my wife in Denton. But also, I met a friend, just so happened that I looked over in in, uh, class one day, and this friend had a Michael W. Smith tape. How often do you see someone with a Michael W. Smith cassette tape? Remember cassette tapes? (laughs) Cassette tape in a secular university. So I just asked him, I said, hey, you like that music? And we struck up a conversation. Turned out he was a Christian, which is what I was sort of assuming. And uh, we became roommates and he just so happened to know somebody who happened to know somebody who went to a church there in Denton, and I started going to that church, and what do you know, this church was pastored by somebody from Dallas Seminary, and one thing led to another, all because I played the guitar. God uses those things in our lives that we think are incidental, and the reality is they're all planned. And if you would trace back uh, how you got to wherever you are now, Or think about a a position that you were given, or that you uh, fell into. You realize that just chance conversations, or a recommendation from a friend of a friend, or you just so happen to see an article that, that led you a certain direction. What seems a chance is really God's choice. We don't have time to read the whole book of Ruth, it's a great book. uh, I hope that you're sufficiently hooked to read the details of the rest of chapter 2, and especially the wonderful, very intimate conversation in chapter 3, including chapter 3, verse 11, where Ruth is called a woman of excellence. That's the exact same Hebrew phrase referred to in Proverbs 31. But I'll uh, I'll give you a spoiler about uh, Ruth the Lord works it out to where she marries Boaz, and it's a wonderful way in which he does it, and there's some wonderful tension involved, because initially Boaz isn't the first in line to potentially marry Ruth, so there's some tension whether or not that's going to happen. Boy, what a great movie this would make. <laughs> and uh, it makes a great story, because it's how our lives are lived. We get to a point we think, oh, this is too good to be true. Turns out it is too good to be true, because there's something that stands in the way, And then God works it out in his time. But look at chapter 4, and let's read the last few verses here, starting at verse 13. God provides a way for Boaz and Ruth to get married, and all of a sudden, from Naomi's perspective, the destitution, the hopelessness, the barrenness, the frustration, the futility, the emptiness that she felt was now she discovers a waste of time and emotional energy. Chapter 4, verse 13. Oh, that's chapter (laughs) 3. That's a good one too, but we won't read that. Chapter 4, verse 13. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age, for your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. I love those verses because Uh, One of the most interesting contrasts of the whole book is in these verses we just read, where they describe Ruth as one who is better to her than seven sons. How many sons did she lose? Two. She said, "I, I, I went out full, and I've come back empty. Now, Ruth is standing there when she says, I've come back empty. How do you think Ruth felt? Empty? What about me? Turns out, she didn't come back empty. She came back with one who was better than seven sons. So often, this is what God will do if we will just wait on his timing. He will give us a perspective where we have looked at life and see, and see life that I'm empty, and the reality is, no, your tank is full. But you're just viewing it from a perspective that's different. Viewing it from a perspective that life is empty. Here's a principle, and it is a principle that really requires faith because we don't see it yet, and here it is. Realize that your present emptiness may prove to be God's greater blessing. That was true for Naomi. It was true for Ruth, and it's true for us. Your present emptiness may prove to be God's greater blessing. Sometimes God withholding what we really want may actually be God giving us more than we could ever imagine. That takes faith, doesn't it? It really does. Well, look, it gets even better. Verse 16, Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying a son's been born to Naomi so they call him Obed which means servant he is the father of Jesse the father of uh, well look at that David Ruth was David's great-grandmother King David now all of a sudden we understand why this wonderful little story of Ruth is in the Bible And it gives a perspective that really helps as well regarding realizing your present emptiness may prove to be God's greater blessing. Naomi and Ruth had no idea that they were about to have a family that would uh, give birth to the greatest king that Israel had, had ever or would ever see. They had no idea. And it's debatable in some sense where you've got, I mean, even Ruth was the great grandmother of David and Naomi would be another generation beyond that. So Naomi very likely didn't even see David. Didn't even realize David. We're not even sure if Ruth did. She's not mentioned again after this book. It'd be nice if it happened but we don't know if it happened. But here's the point. It's mentioned very specifically because it gives us not only an insight into God's sovereignty of bringing the line of David uh, into the picture, but it also gives us encouragement because you may feel like your life has been a whole waste of time. And the reality is, no, you may have a great-grandchild as a result of your life, your example, your influence, your being there, that God is going to powerfully use to change this world for Jesus Christ. When we read in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, Ruth's name is there. This Moabitess, this foreigner who loved the Lord God enough to say, I'm going to take you to be my God. And now God has sovereignly weaved her in the line of the Messiah, of Christ. Now, Christ has already come, so we're not going to be weaved into the line of the Messiah. But the the principle is still there, that your life, you may feel, has come to a big empty nothing, but the reality is there are generations after us that God is going to work because of us, that he may do powerful things for this world, and he did it because of us as well. We're told in the ordinary events of life, God works. Ruth talks about marriage, about death about struggle, about disappointment, of how God worked to produce blessings in keeping with his character. Does God know what he's doing when he allows hard times? Absolutely. Do we know what God's doing when he allows hard times? Absolutely not. But we're given texts like this to give us a peek behind the curtain. God doesn't show us a peek behind the curtain in our lives but he shows us a peek behind the curtain in our lives by showing how he works in the lives of others. The story of Ruth is your story, and it's my story. It's a story of God working through sovereign, normal, daily happenstance events to where God uses those for great, great um, results. Begin to see the character of God in your circumstances rather than using your circumstances to show the character of God. In reality, our present emptiness may prove to be God's blessing. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for the great faith of this young woman, Ruth. What a hero she is to us not just because she was the great-grandmother of King David, but because she loved you enough and loved Naomi enough that she would literally surrender her life and give her life and her future in devotion to you. Father, we find ourselves in situations like Ruth, like Naomi, where if we were to evaluate your love for us based on the circumstances we see right now we would say that you have dealt very bitterly with us and our life is a big empty gas tank but the reality is it's so different it was different for Naomi and Ruth and it's different for us it's just going to take time for your sovereignty to show how wonderful your plan is so far greater than we could ever imagine So give us the faith that we need in our daily struggles to trust you beyond the immediate demand that we have for seeing results here and now, and give us a faith that goes beyond even our life to the life of our children and grandchildren or our friends, those whom we impact for the kingdom of God. We don't have to see the results to believe you. We simply walk with you by faith, and we trust that you are working out those results strengthen us along the way you've done it today through ruth we pray that you do it also through the lives of other people that you give us strength to wait on you to trust you and one day when we stand before you in glory to see how it's all unraveled how it's all come together that we will give praise because of the wonderful things you've done in a life that we thought was an empty life As Paul wrote, we continue, we conclude our prayer. To him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.